I'm Kimberly Claire MacArthur. Oh, then it's you are. It's close. Right? Did I spell her name right? Huh? I'm right. Okay, good. I'm still new at it, so, you know, I haven't had it for very long. Tonight, um, we're going to be doing a lot of scripture, and I even have some pictures. So hopefully you won't fall asleep because it's really hot in here. So if you need water, there's huge uh, things downstairs from dinner that I'm sure have a little bit of water left in them. And there's also a water fountain downstairs. So I won't be offended if you need water and you have to get up. Um, Would you pray with me before we start? God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for his love fellowship and their continued incredible hospitality to us. I pray that you would make us grateful um, when we feel uh, that being here and out of our building is difficult. I pray that you would give us um, servant hearts towards them because they share our building with us. And I know that's not easy for them all the time. Thanks for each person that's here tonight, and I pray, God, that you would open their hearts and their minds to what you have to say to them. I pray that you would open my heart and my mind that if there's anything you want me to not say that I have um, considered that you would remove that. And if there's anything I need to say that I haven't considered, would you put it in my mind? Help me be aware and attentive to your spirit. And may you be glorified through this time of um, different kind of worship, a worship of study of your word. So we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard a verse used out of context? Yeah. Uh, tonight we're talking about a verse that's been used out of context a lot. And so it has been part of our hot topic, um, for this week. And I got kind of excited about it because the way that it's used has been harmful. I think, um, the, the primary verse is from second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14, that says, do not be yoked to unbelievers. And Um, I've heard this verse used in many different ways, advocating against public schools, advocating not having any friends that are not believers so that all your friends are just Christians. Um, I've heard it used to support, um, Marriages between, to make sure that marriages are only between people of the same race or the same socioeconomic background, the same um, ethnic origin. And they use this passage as support for why you should do those specific things. And tonight, we're going to look at the chunk of passage that this scripture verse is in to hopefully understand the context, the background, 
who Paul was writing to, why did he even say it that way, um, what does it mean for our lives, and how do we understand it? Does it really mean those things, or does it not? So I'm hoping that by the end of this time tonight, that you can answer those questions yourself from going through the passage. Um, I'll probably make it pretty clear. (laughs) Uh, So if you have a Bible in front of you and prefer to have it close and in your hand, um, I'm kind of like that. So I actually have it up here. I'll be reading out of the TNIV. I'm not pretty. Did you do the NIV? The TNIV? Awesome. Um, It'll also be up here so you can follow along. And I'm going to read it through and then we're going to kind of pick it apart. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is a rare word for Satan. Um, Commentators go all over the place about why he didn't just say Satan or the evil one or something. But this is like the only place in scripture that it's used. But that's what it means. Or does does a believer have a... What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God... And idols, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So a little background on this passage. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. At the time that this was written, Corinth was an urban city, a huge metropolis, and it was home to two major cultic temples of the time. One you, I would bet that everybody here has heard of Aphrodite, and another, I might butcher this, Asclepius, A-S-C-L-E-P-I-U-S, Asclepius, I think. Asclepius was the temple where people went when they wanted healing, and so they would bring money, and they would bring resources, and they would hold feasts, and ask the god of Asclepius for healing. Then there was the temple of Aphrodite, who was the goddess of fertility, sexuality, beauty. You could probably guess there was a lot of nakedness in that temple. Uh, People went there when they wanted those things. So they would feast there. There were actually uh, women who were hired. They lived there. They were basically prostitutes in the temple. And they provided ways of the goddess granting people's wishes. You can use your imaginations. So these temples were actually places of um, a lot of cultural and social events that happened. Um, I think of it as kind of like 
you know, there's the Temple Event Center downtown, there's Pepsi Center, things like that. So it was a place that a lot of people went all the time to do different things, um, not just worship the goddess or God. So these Christians were going to these temples for a lot of different reasons, and I think that they just kind of started hanging out there because that's what everybody did. And over time, they started participating more and more in what happened in the activities of that temple. So Paul is writing this chunk of passage in response to that activity, that they're starting to engage in things that are incongruent with being a Christian. Um, There are certain morals, certain desires that God has for us and how we live our lives and the way they were acting in those temples and in their culture was contradictory to who they were saying they were as Christians. As believers in Jesus Christ, they had received grace and forgiveness and love. They had come into the family of God. They're representatives of God in the world, of who God was in his character. And the way that they were acting was not matching up. So Paul's first statement is, do not be yoked with unbelievers. So somehow in this temple worship, in, the, in, in attending these temple events, they were also yoking with unbelievers, which we don't exactly know what that means yet. When I first read this, I thought, you know, I don't really know what a yoke is. I mean, I know it's something for cows, but that's about it. So let me clarify. First of all, it is not a yoke like that. It's not spelled the same way, but a lot of people think it is. Y-O-L-K. Yoke. Um, This is a yoke. And two cow's heads go in the holes. That's what a yoke looks like. But actually, I learned there's three different kinds of yokes depending on the kind of breed of oxen that you're going to yoke. But that's the most common. I won't go into any more details. Um, Here are longhorn cattle yoked. Aren't they kind of cool? Oh, this is another kind of yoke. This is the head yoke. See how it like holds in between their heads? They push with their heads like this. Whereas with the other one, it like goes here and they push with their bodies. So I just think they're kind of cute. Um, hold the last picture. So yokes have been used for thousands of years on every single continent. So when Paul said, do not be yoked with unbelievers, he was using a very common uh, metaphor or analogy illustration for people who, unlike us, were probably more familiar with how a yoke worked and what happened with it and important things that you need to know about yokes. So I went up and I read about yokes. Um, I think I spent three hours learning about yokes this week. I read an 18-page paper that a guy did um, for a college in, like, Iowa about how you make yokes and um, the kind of wood you would want to use and all this. I will spare you the details and tell you the important nuggets. (laughs) Um, Okay, here's the most amazing thing. There are many different breeds of uh, cattle. Oh, Sorry, I'm kind of excited about this. (laughs) Um, Cattle are untrained, 
Oxen are the same thing, just trained. Okay? So oxen, are. there's lots of different breeds. They can weigh anywhere from 500 pounds to 3,000 pounds. That's really big. Um, oxen alone, just one oxen pulling in a yoke, can pull one and a half times its weight. So like a 500-pound oxen could pull what? 750 pounds? Is that right? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, if you are a 3,000-pound ox and you're pulling with another 3,000-pound ox, you can pull three times your weight, 18,000 pounds. That's a lot. So when they're together, they can pull more. I don't know why, but they can. I think it's incredible because in addition, oxen are also herded cattle or herding animals, you know. Um, we've recently driven all the way across Kansas and saw lots of cattle and we've noticed that they squish under trees when it's really hot. I don't know. They like to be close to each other. They're, they're into community or something, but they're calmer. They're more relaxed when they're together. So not only can a pair of oxen pull a lot of weight, they're also more relaxed, more calm, more trainable. And they can be guided and directed more easily. What else? I think that might be it. Oh, some things you don't want to do. Don't yoke an ox with a donkey. You can't see it very well, but the dark spot is an ox. And the light, the one in the front is a donkey. And you see how they're kind of cattywampus and they're kind of like funky? I don't know. I feel sorry for that donkey because the oxen is so much bigger. And that, here's what I read. When it doesn't fit, when the, when the, when the yoke doesn't fit, it rubs sores on their bodies. And it can destroy their skeletal structure. And so a yoke is actually fitted, supposed to be fitted for each animal individually. And you really should have the same kind. Otherwise, you can actually cause a fatal accident for one or the other. So if you're ever yoking oxen, you've just had your little lesson. <laughs> um, okay. You might want to put the donkey one away because he'll be distracting because you'll feel really bad for him the whole time. Yeah, that's better. Good. Okay, so when Paul says, do not be yoked with unbelievers, keep all of this in mind. Because this is what we learn about yokes. This is what it means to be yoked. He's telling them for good reason. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. If we take all that we've learned and apply it to this. When we're yoked with a like-minded person, we're probably more like oxen than we'd like to admit. We can pull more. We can last longer. We're more gentle. We're more kind. We're more trainable. We can be guided more easily. I don't know if I can pull 18,000 pounds, but when we're yoked with one who is not similar, there's danger of injury, sores, even death. So, you know, Jesus had something to say about yokes too. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me. I don't know if you have it or not, but I'll read it to you. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As believers in Jesus, we are first and foremost to be yoked to him. We receive a gift in being yoked to him. Our burden is light because he carries it. I think he probably carries 17,999 pounds and we carry one. With Jesus, a yoke doesn't mean a burden or enslavement. It means freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from things that bind us, which is really different than the use of a yoke for, from a human standpoint, because from a human standpoint, it's used as with oxen for, a bur- for pulling a burden or with people, which I didn't really talk about and I won't, but yokes at times can be used with people for enslavement. And with Jesus, he turns that around and says, when you take my yoke upon you, it's light, it's easy, it's gentle, it's humble. Our passage today, when Paul implores the Christians in Corinth to remember the God that they are yoked to first, he uses some Old Testament examples. Ben, would you take us back to the, to the verse, I mean the passage in 2 Corinthians? So he uses in verse 16 through 18 some important Old Testament passages. In verse 16, he quotes Leviticus 26, 12 to them. If you go there and read right after the verse, there is something quite interesting. Verse 13, or let me, let me actually go there and read it. Verse 12 to 13. I will walk among you. This is God talking to his people. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you will no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting connection there that God broke the yoke of slavery that his people were in. He seems to not like yokes that cause burdens and that cause slavery and that cause us to be connected to anything else but him. He seems to have a way of breaking the yokes that bind us to anything but him. Because God cares about our lives, our commitments, and the things that hold us. He wants us to be free, not bound, so that our lives can be of worship to him, a loving response to him, of service to other people. When we are bound and yoked to something else, we're not free to serve and love and worship. We are... (laughs) I'm remembering when Adam and I first were talking about this passage. I took my scarf and I wrapped it around his neck and I wrapped it around my neck and I said, now try to go a different way. And I stood and held it really tight. And it was like, you know, and that's the way it is when you're yoked to something other than God. You're trying to follow God and it just about chokes you 
because this other thing is taking up all your resources and all your time and all your money and really causing you harm. This is important to understand as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked to unbelievers. Because God wants to be yoked to us first and foremost. So think now. I want to invite you to reflect on your life. Reflect on the people and the relationships you have. Are there relationships? Are there things? Are there places you go? Are there people you see? Are there circumstances you're in that take up your time, take up your resources, your emotional energy, all those things can be telling that you perhaps might be yoked to something other than God first and foremost. I have experienced a little bit of being yoked to someone not very good. Thankfully, it wasn't a permanent thing. I'm not even actually sure if you can call it a yoking. However, I treated it that way. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why. Thankfully, it wasn't permanent. It was just a semester of school. However, it illustrates, I think, how you can be distracted to the point of losing your identity, of totally going a different direction from God, and not being yoked to him first and foremost. It was my first semester of college. He was my first boyfriend, my first time living away from home, and I was young, 17. In fact, I had to get a permission slip signed, actually, to go on an university retreat that semester because <laughs> um, I wasn't 18 yet. Everyone else is 18 or 19, but anyways. So there was this guy. We lived in these um, dorms that were more like townhouses, and we had these courtyards in the middle. And the townhouses were um, not co-ed, but like the townhouses around the courtyard were co-ed. So there's this guy that lived across my courtyard that I just, I wanted him to like me so much. I really, really wanted him to like me. I worked really hard at it, really hard. I changed what I wore. I started like hanging out with him whenever he was outside, which sometimes meant I missed class. Um, I started smoking, I started drinking, I started hanging out with his friends because then he would like me. Um, and it worked. One day he kissed me and then we were dating. It was great. For like two and a half months. I didn't go to class. I um, stopped hanging out with my group of friends that I went to university with. Stopped going to Bible study, stopped going to church because I wanted to be with him all the time. Um, I learned a lot about Primus in that time. Yeah. Another really funny thing about this guy, we ha okay, can you see my feet? They're not very big. He had the same size feet as me. I just thought that was funny. He wasn't really, anyways, I'll stop because that could really digress. <laughs> um, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Christmas break came. And it was the wake-up call that I got um, when in the mail I had a letter of my academic probation. I had a 1.9 GPA, and if I kept it up, I couldn't go back to school. I was kind of like, how did I do that? Oh, yeah, I stopped going to class. Um, I started going to my home church again. I found that I really missed my church. 
I really missed my relationship with God because I had pretty much just shut the door for a while on it. The other thing I noticed was all those friends that I gave up called me during that time, but the friends that I uh, had started spending time with, they didn't call. And that was kind of a wake-up call for me as well. So I realized that I had given up a lot, and it was because I really wanted someone to love me. And the reality was he didn't really love me anyways for who I was because I had given up like the major things that made me who I was. So it was kind of a bad cycle. And in addition, I don't think he really liked me in the first place because I think it was more like, I want to have sex with you. Which we never did anyways. Actually, the way we broke up was I walked in on him with someone else. That was really bad. But that broke the yoke kind of thing. Because basically I just stopped talking to him. And that was broken. And I went, oh, yeah, this is who I am. I love God. I am a child of God. I am loved by God. And so I'm going to live out of that rather than this creepy guy that, yeah. So that was my little worship of a little person for a little period of time. And I realized that perhaps many of you have experienced bigger worships of bigger things for bigger periods of time. But I don't think that it really matters because God can handle it all, right? Like he, it doesn't matter how long or how big or how little or how short those time spans have been because God can handle it. He can still break those yokes and still offer us his yoke of freedom. I think he does this because he wants so much to be connected to us in relationship. If we look back at the passage again, um, the Old Testament verses really tell us how God feels about us. The one that is most poignant to me is verse 18. That comes from Second Samuel seven fourteen. It says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. These are reminders that Paul is pulling from history, saying, don't forget. Remember what God has said. Remember what God has done. Remember how he brought you out of exile from Egypt. Remember how he brought you out of exile from Babylon. Remember how God continues to pursue you and break those things that you keep getting connected with. They're also reminders for us who know the story of the New Testament that the ultimate yoke of slavery is broken in the Messiah, Jesus. Because he has broken the yoke of death. He cannot hold us when we are yoked to Jesus, which is why it is so important that we are first and foremost yoked to him because he brings us out of the exile of death. This is our identity, that we have been brought out of exile from death. You, me, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
And he has pursued us and will continue to pursue us and break our yoke so that he is first and foremost in our lives. You scum of the earth are his children and he loves you and he is your father and he walks with you and he lives within you. It says in verse 16 that we are the dwelling place of God, that we are the temple of the living God. So we have the capacity within us for our yokes to be broken because within us is the power of God. He dwells within us. Because he dwells within us, he calls us to holiness. He calls us to purity. To be in relationship with him. He doesn't want anything to come between us and him. So we come to the last verse, 7-1. Therefore, since we have these promises from the Old Testament that Paul has just gone through. Dear friends... He says, let us, because of these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates our body and our spirit. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, out of reverence for our Father, out of awe for who he is that he continues to pursue us and has the capability of freeing us from the exile of death. Holiness. Holiness means, when you go back to the root of it, it means set apart. Literally taken out of something, like I'm taking this out and setting it over here. This is now holy, set apart. And It's hard to, I think it's hard to explain holiness because it's perfection, it's purity. It's kind of like a diamond. You know, when you go to buy a diamond, there's all these cuts and colors and different things and there's impurities in it. It would be like a diamond that has none of that. It's absolutely perfect, pure, holy, set apart because it would be amazing because there's like none like it. God makes us like that by indwelling us. But we also have the ability, this is the catch, it's kind of a two-sided thing. We have the ability to choose holiness. We have the ability to choose a holy way of living. Colossians 3, I think, gives us a really wonderful picture of the character of holiness. And if you were at um, either Aaron and Julia's wedding yesterday or Kate and Nadie's, Kate and Nadie, I did it. Katie and Nate at their wedding. Um, it was read there. And so if you're confused about what is holiness, um, I'm going to read this real quick because I think it helps clarify. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, um, clothe yourselves. So we are holy and we're going to clothe ourselves with this. So this is what holiness is. Close yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So what is holiness? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, bearing with one another, being united in love. So as we respond to God's goodness to us, we, he asks us to choose holiness, which are characterized by those things. So let's cut to the chase. In this verse, 7-1, he's saying, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Well, they've just been in these temples where they're really, really sexually immoral. Like, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking about the immorality in these temples, and they're gloating about having sex with their stepmother. That's just disgusting. So he's saying... Stop having sex with all these people. It's contaminating your body and your soul. They're connected. Stop worshiping these little gods and goddesses that are asking so much of you, taking all your money, taking all your resources, and getting you nothing. You are wasting your money, your resources, your time, your ability to have relationship. Focus on the one who gives life and freedom and love. All right, so what are we supposed to be doing? What is this not being yoked to unbelievers? Because he's my husband, he gets to process sermons a lot with me. James, Jim, MacArthur. And <laughs> while we were doing that, he, go, he started laughing, and I was like, what? And he said, oh, I'm remembering this time when Mike and I were talking, like, years ago. And I was telling him about this thing with this girl, And Mike said, you know how it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes, well, we weren't doing any yoking. I thought that was pretty great. Hang on, I need some water. This morning, a guy in morning church goes, you've got to be yoking. He had a really long beard, too. What was his name, Jackie? Robbie? Yeah, he was pretty great. I liked that guy. (laughs) So, if we're not doing any yoking, what does it mean? I think we need to pay attention to the fact that God doesn't want us to become controlled, enslaved, or restricted from loving him or being with him in any way. That's really clear. Well, let me answer some questions and we'll move on. Are we supposed to be totally separate from the world to be holy? Because you know how I said in the beginning that some people say you shouldn't be friends with anyone who's not a Christian because of this passage. So is that true? Are we supposed to be totally separate from the world? Like go into the, uh, you know, the plains of Kansas in the middle of a field and not see anyone else or talk to anyone else, insulate ourselves? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, yeah, that one. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, um, the first letter before this one. 
And he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers who are idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. What he goes on to say is that he meant to warn people about people within the church who call themselves Christians but don't act like it. So here, this very much is like Paul saying, be a part of the world. Because you're going to know people who are sexually immoral, who are greedy, who are swindlers, who are idolaters. Don't leave the world because of them. How else would they get to know the Lord? Next question. Are we supposed to divorce a person if we're married to them? If, if, we, if we're married to them and then they become, like we become a believer, but they don't, are we supposed to divorce them? Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12 through 16. It's there. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it for you, but you can read it if you want. It talks about how you shouldn't divorce an unbelieving person for the sake of the marriage, for the sake of the children, and because we were called to peace. That's my paraphrase. So no, don't divorce them. Stay in it. God will give you what you need. Um... I didn't ask the permission, but I think it's okay. Uh, my parents have been married for 40 years. And um, I'm really glad that my mom didn't divorce my dad. They have an incredible story. Um, so I think it's really difficult to pinpoint, to get exactly to the point of what does it mean to not be yoked to an unbeliever? We can say, here's what a yoke is, here's what an unbeliever is, but really, I think it's something that we've got to say, okay, I'm yoked with Jesus first. I'm yoked with God first. Now we look at Jesus and say, who do you want me to be yoked with? Because it's different for each one of us. So consider your burdens. Your yokes. Ask God to show you what they are. What are they? I have a feeling that you kind of know right here in your heart. What are the things that keep you from God? What are the things that would distract you from being a part of your community? What are the things that would distract you from being in relationship with God? As you think of those things, here are some questions that I thought of that for me at least are helpful as like a filter or something to sift with. Um, here they are. Does this person draw me towards God or away towards or away from God? Do I talk to this person about God? Does this person engage me in conversation about God? Are they interested in God? Next question. Does this person have the same values as I do? Um, values, things that dictate your life, that are really important to you, that this is how you make decisions about your life. Um, for me, one of those is um, integrity. We, we did this, like, test thing in seminary where I've, like, you put all these cards on, on this table, you're figuring out your values, and you have to, like, weed them out. And I came up with five. I have five values. 
I wanted, I wanted more, but they wouldn't let me have it. So integrity, family, communication, I think like safety was one. That was a weird one to accept. Um, I don't remember my fifth one, but I do remember that Mike Sayers had one. It was having a good time. That was one of his values. I think Mary has that value, having a good time. Um, so does this person have the same values as I do? Um, one of the things that when I talk to people sometimes about like, how do I make a decision whether I should date this person? Um, I kind of wish I had the microphone stand right now. That's okay. Um, I kind of do this. Okay. So here's me and these are my values. Oh, really? Okay. Here's me and these are my values. And these are my interests. And a lot of times when you're going to date somebody, you're trying to get your interests to line up, but a lot of times your values don't line up. So you like have all these like great times together, but then eventually the relationship collapses because there's nothing really holding it up. But if you have a relationship with someone where your values line up so much stronger and the reality is, is that, you know, maybe you have like one experience, but this lasts so much longer like maybe even a lifetime where this, I don't, I don't give it two years. So thank you. So I think it's really good as you evaluate relationships to think, does this person have the same values as I do? Or do we just like to do the same things? And this is when you're thinking about yoking yourself with someone, which could be marriage, or it could mean like a legally binding thing, like a business partnership or, um, I also would say that I have a, have a yoking with a mentor. She and I have been in a relationship for eight years. I think she knows everything about me. I would say that we're yoked together. Okay. Two more questions. Does this person love God as much or more than I do? So does this person challenge me in loving God? And serving people and loving people? Like, do they do it even more? Does this person... It's funny. I wrote, does this person or community help me to be more holy? Because I think I was thinking at that point, as I was writing these questions, this went through my head. I kind of feel like I'm yoked to scum of the earth church. Um, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, permanent binding kind of contract, but I feel commitment. I feel, I mean, my, my resources, my time, my energy, my relationships are all rooted here in a lot of ways. Not that I don't have relationships somewhere else, but this place makes me more holy. It encourages me towards Christ likeness. So as a question, as a, as a sifting and a way to think through your yokes. Does that person, does that community, does that place make you more holy? So as a single person, you can ask these questions when you're thinking about somebody to date, when you're thinking about maybe should I get married? When you're thinking about just spending a considerable amount of time with someone, like who's going to be your mentor? To those of us who, to all of us, who make agreements with people, 
who have business contracts with people who are making decisions about where they're going to move for an indefinite period of time. These are important questions to weigh. James and I are, um, in three, about three weeks, taking a position in um, Scott's Bluff. He got a job. And um, he got a job as a professor at Western Nebraska Community College. So we're moving in three weeks, which we're happy, sad about, sad, happy. Because we've been praying for a long time for a job. So we're really happy that God has provided this. But as we were trying to decide whether to accept the position, one of the questions we asked one another was, how will us accepting the job in Scott's bluff affect the kingdom of God. We wrestled with that because it meant taking us out of this community, and that was really hard. And we really had to pray and ask God, is this what you want? Is this where you're leading us? Because we see a lot of good here, and it's really hard to leave. And we felt God say, trust me with it. So I'll end with this. This passage is a caution. Do not be yoked with unbelievers is a caution. Be in the world and not of it. Be careful who you are yoked to because your holiness is of utmost importance to God. Your relationship to him is of utmost importance. Nothing should take you away from that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you um, for your word and that you have given us uh, reason and understanding and the ability to think and pray and consider your word so that we might understand more fully who you want us to be, how you want us to live, and who you are as our God, as our Father, and how we are to be your children. Please help us, scum of the earth church, to be more, to look more like your children when we walk out of this building than we did when we walked in. And help us have discernment about where we should be connected and with whom we should be connected so that you may be honored, God. In your name we pray. Amen.